The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of the Missing Link podcast, which sounds so crazy to say. This time has just completely flown by. I launched this podcast on September 8th of 2021, and since then, we've had 85 episodes. Today is actually episode number 86, with tons of truly amazing MS experts and guests. We've had just over 37,000 downloads in the last year. Initially, we launched the Missing Link podcast with episodes with Dr. Boster, Mindy Eisenberg, BA Link, Matt Embry, and Ardra Shepard. I wanted to take a brief moment today to thank all of my guests for sharing their expertise and knowledge with us. And I also wanted to thank you, you listening to my podcast each week. And sharing these episodes is helping me towards my mission of spreading MS education and empowerment worldwide. Whether you've been with me since the beginning or you're a recent listener, I so appreciate you. And I'm looking forward to many more years of helping you learn best ways to manage your MS and get you motivated to take action towards your goals through the Missing Link podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am interviewing Dr. Marco Vespignani. He is a naturopath in Seattle, Washington, where he focuses on treatment of neurological conditions. Dr. Marco is well known for his research-based holistic approach to medicine. On today's episode, Dr. Marco gives us tons of guidance and recommendations to reduce inflammation, improve our immune function, and promote healing and repair of the systems in our body through his four pillar approach. His main focus is managing MS through diet and supplements, and you'll learn the ins and outs of each of his recommendations. So you'll fully understand what is happening in our body and why his advice will make a difference. Make sure you have a piece of paper and a pen to take notes because you're going to have a lot of them. Dr. Marco, thank you so much for being here with us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited for our talk today. Of course. So I've got tons of questions for you, but before we do, is it okay if I ask you a question from my interview deck too? Oh, great. Yeah. Let's, let's see. Let's see what we got. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to shuffle. Your question is, what is your kryptonite? My kryptonite. Well, funny, this actually happened just a couple of days ago. Centipedes for some reason. <laughs> My daughter was at a sleepover. They were on a trampoline and they kind of slept outside because it's been really nice here in Seattle. And so she brought home a centipede in her sleepover bag. And oh. I was at work. She texted me about it. And that was enough for me to already get freaked out. She had to call the neighbor who has a freshman <laughs> in high school. She came and killed it. 
So I brought, I bought them candy because centipedes. I, yeah, I'm not sure I why. That. I think when I was a kid, one of my friends told me they could burrow under your skin and live there. And now, even as a doctor, I know it's not true. Like I see them and I'm like, yeah, so wow. no, no centipede gifts for me, please. Yeah, that's too <laughs> funny. That's a good one. And funny that it was so relevant that you just had that experience. Yeah, man, I just, I had to like, I can still get the adrenaline right now. Like it's a couple <laughs> days later. <laughs> I love it. All right. So I would love to start our conversation off by chatting a little bit about how you work with clients, because I know that you have a four-part framework and I kind of wanted to just dive into each of those. So I guess let's first start with just what is the first part of the framework? And then we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. And so I think what often happens for me to kind of back up is that you know, I'm in Seattle where I am a physician and so I can practice medicine and kind of work with patients. So when it comes to MS, I kind of have a series of patients. I have patients that are newly diagnosed. Those are the ones I really like to work with because for me, education is a big part of that. So there are patients who come to me as a direct referral from a neurologist because they've been kind of stunned by the diagnosis. They're not exactly sure what to do. You know, they've been given this list of therapies to start with. And there's some considerations with each of those. And so they're still kind of in this learning thinking phase. And if they bring up things like diet or natural alternative things, neurologists in this town at least know they can send them to me and they're going to get a really good broad understanding of what's out there as well as kind of discussions about more conventional therapies, which is stuff that I can work with. Mm -hmm. So often I start working with patients that are, you know, either newly diagnosed or kind of considering what other options there might be either in addition or in lieu of their conventional therapies. And so that's kind of the starting place for me. And within that, I've figured out that if I can kind of create a framework of understanding for them about what the disease process is, and then what we can do together, and also mostly it's what the patients have to do themselves to address each part of that disease process. And so you mentioned the four-part framework. And so in getting in it, The four pillars that I like to think of is kind of anti-inflammatory, because as an immunogenic disease, inflammation is part of that. Antioxidants, because oxidation is the way in which the body breaks down. We kind of rust on the inside. And then immunomodulation, which from a conventional standpoint is really where they focus, right? The idea is that, well, your immune system has gone awry, and so we need to find some way to modulate that either through suppressive or kind of mimic reagents or kind of shifting the immune system's ability to attack self. And then something that I feel like is kind of unique, it was before, it's becoming a little bit more conventional, but was unique to me at the time, is this repair strategy, this idea that the body's always healing. I like to tell patients, as long as you're breathing, you're healing. The idea of being alive is this kind of fighting against entropy. And so once you die, once you stop breathing, you're not healing anymore. But until that moment, you're always repairing, right? And in my experience, again, it's changing, but in my experience, patients with MS were never really given much hope about repair, Mm -hmm. but it's like, well, it's really about the future. You don't want to be disabled, right? As opposed to, can we gain back? And I know that's a big part of what you do, gaining back those things that have been lost, you know, neuroplasticity and other things, trying to really get the body back to a better state. So those are the frameworks. Yeah, I think that it's so important to have people like you helping us because I mean, I have some clients with MS who are interested in a more holistic approach and they're also taking disease modifying therapies, 
And then I have other clients who are not taking disease modifying therapies. They only want a holistic or naturopathic approach. So I feel like the work that you do applies to so many people, if not everyone with MS. So yeah, so let's dive into to part one. Yeah, for sure. And just to tag onto that real quick, because I worked with a neurologist, that was my first kind of exposure to this world. I mean, I saw a patient when I was a student who had MS and that was my first interest in it. But I had to learn to work with conventional providers within the clinic I was in. And so to me, it makes no difference to me in my strategy, whether someone's on disease modifying therapy or not. There are patients where I'm more comfortable when they are because there may be more aggressive disease or kind of where they are in the process, but it doesn't change my strategy at all. Oh, um, that's good so to that's, know. That's a nice thing for me. I keep coming at it with the same approach. Right. So diving into the first one, anti-inflammatory. And so the idea that there is this kind of inflammatory event that's going on that's mediated by the immune system. And so you can think of that both in an acute sense. Solumedrol IV is really a very powerful anti-inflammatory. It's enough steroid to kind of soak into the nervous system, which is the most protected part of the body. And so it's a conventional approach to use an anti-inflammatory, but I think of it more as an everyday that someone's kind of dealing with inflammation on an ongoing basis. And there may be a point where the bear is poked and then, and then they get a bite, right? And so the idea is, what can you do each day to kind of not poke the bear, kind of keep things at a more steady rate of inflammation or just, you know, lower. And so dietary approaches are big for that. We kind of have this theoretical, but also there's some research around it, looking at high sugar diets, that the more glycosylation, the more blood sugar that comes in, the more insulin that's released, that this kind of creates this low level fire in the body. And so knowing that kind of keeping people's blood sugar under control, maybe even going through periods of time where there's a little bit of fasting going on, you look at some of the caloric restriction diets or cortisol mediating ketosis diets, things that can kind of adjust how much blood sugar is in the body does have a relationship to inflammation. So there's a whole thing around just controlling sugar and yeah. that alone is anti-inflammatory and you're not doing anything outside of just keeping track of what kind of sugars are coming in added sugars, simple sugars, and that can be difficult for a lot of people. I mean, I've been to support groups where they come in and you get your name tag and you're walking around and it's just cookies and candy bars, you know, all across <laughs> that table. And yeah. so as I start my discussion, they're munching down on a Milky Way and I'm like, ah, oh, well, you know, not pointing fingers, <laughs> but that burst of sugar has to be controlled by the body. That kind of immediate release of sugar sends information out to the body. I mean, sugar our blood groups, A, B, O, those are sugars that are on the blood cell. So when you glycosylate, when you have a high hemoglobin A1C, when you have a lot of different kinds of sucrose and other sugars coming in, you don't know what the body's reading from that. We'll talk a little bit about probiotics in a bit when we come to immunomodulation. Those bacteria have sugars on their, on their walls. And so the immune system is like, oh, there's a lot of sugar here. This must be a bacteria right? Huh. Same thing. Oh, there's a lot of sugar here. This might be a mushroom, but the mushroom might stimulate the immune system in some way or stimulate the body. So sugar provides information. It's, it's not quite as detailed as DNA or anything else, but there's information that's given to the body when you consume certain types of sugars. 
And so that's important to recognize when you're dealing with an immune system mediated process. So step one of inflammation, regulate sugar. So we didn't learn a whole lot about nutrition in physical therapy school, but I do remember learning that there are some foods that are better taken, better digested and broken down when eaten with other foods. And I know it can be the same too for some medications or supplements. Is there anything with sugar? Like if you have to have sugar, have it with dairy or I don't know, protein. Fiber, really. Fiber is the insulation that kind of slows the release of sugar. So you kind of think of it like ants on a log are a great example, right? So some celery, some peanut butter, and some raisins or something. And so there's fiber in all of that. There's fiber in the celery, there's fiber in the peanut butter, there's fiber in the raisins. And so even those are all kind of sweet things, especially if the peanut butter has added sugar, the fiber helps to kind of slow the rate at which that's going to escape into the bloodstream. I try to educate my patients in really simple ways. And so I talk to them about what I call a 10 minute water test, something I made up in my head that if you're about to eat something, imagine what would happen if you soaked it in water for 10 minutes first, like a cracker, a piece of bread, a cucumber, you know, whatever you're about to eat, just kind of run through a theoretical, like, what would it be like if I soaked it in water for 10 minutes first? And if there's no way you would touch it after it's been in water for 10 minutes, think about what happens when it sits in a bowl of hot acid. right? Which is your stomach. So if water can digest something, it's breaking down very quickly. Mm -hmm. So the more food you consume that can be digested by water alone, the more you have to consider how that breaks down in the stomach and how quickly that gets into the bloodstream and then how quickly the body has to deal with that new substance. Now, if you're running a marathon, perfect, right? You want a goo pack or yogurt or something, right? But if you're eating that way on a regular basis, you're giving huge bursts of sugar into the body that then has to be regulated in some way. Right. So I understand what you're saying. You know, the food combining concept, kind of like rice and beans and like things that kind of roll together because they complete each other. But from a sugar standpoint, you're mostly just trying to avoid straight up added sugar. You know, if you're looking at a label of something, there's carbohydrates, which are a sugar, but fibers are carbohydrates and, you know, complex carbohydrates. So you're really looking for sugars and specifically, you know, anything that's like an added sugar. I'm not a black and white zealot by any means, right? Like eat your sugar, but the more you eat that way, the more you have to consider how that's impacting your overall health and inflammation in this state. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something to consider because I feel like there's sugar in everything, whether it's added sugar or artificial sweeteners, there's just, it's hard. So it's good to keep an eye out for. And so much of that was from the anti-fat era of the, you know, mid mid to late seventies, right. Where, you know, let's, let's take the fat of everything, which then makes things taste kind of poorly. And then we've got all this extra corn we need to figure out what to do with. So let's just add some corn syrup to everything and, and we're good to go. I think about sodas, right? When I ask someone about their diet, they're usually kind of thinking about these really specific timeframes and they don't really think about all of the little snacks and stuff that come in between. And, and a single soda has about 13 teaspoons of sugar in it. Oh, wow. Like a, a teaspoon of sugar is five grams. So if you see 65 grams of sugar, you know, so people are like, sometimes I put a scoop of sugar in my coffee in the morning and I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, 
if someone's like, sometimes I put 13 scoops of sugar in my coffee in the morning, I'd be like, you have a problem. <laughs> like yeah. we, but, you know, and people consume a soda like it's, you know, a rock star or Red Bull because they have low energy or something. And, and suddenly they're consumed an incredible amount of added sugar. Yeah. And fats make a difference, you know, not that fat is perfect, but the kind of fats that someone consumes, you know, more plant fats. I like medium chain triglyceride fats, you know, things like coconut, avocado. Those are saturated fats, which are often considered to be a bad thing in MS, you know, swank diet, you want to avoid saturated fats. And I think of it more of carbon size that when you're consuming a coconut fat or an avocado fat, it's eight or 10 carbons. It's kind of a small, I have kids, so I think of them as like small little Legos for building where bacon or beef is this 24, 22, 26 carbon chunk that then the body has to figure out how to get those carbons off. And if you have a Lego that you're trying to, it's a roof or a floor, but you want to make something out of it. When you snap it, you break it, it turns white. It's, you know, it oxidizes. It's, you know, so eating healthy fats in my mind is also an inflammatory, anti-inflammatory approach, you know, bringing things into the body that are less likely to become inflamed when they break down. So omega-3s, olive oil, there was a recent paper that was at the AAN this year, which is the neurology conference, looking at the Mediterranean diet and MS and really seeing that individuals who, you know, over their lifetime have consumed a more Mediterranean diet have less disability, that their progression is better. And that olive oil, oddly enough, was the single best predictor of how much, you know, disability there was that someone who consumed now, I don't think olive oil is, is the fix, but <laughs> it's an interesting thing that that particular measurement showed that that fat was helpful. Yeah. You know, I have been reading a lot more lately about olive oil. One yeah. of my clients actually told me that her doctor just told her to have a tablespoon of olive oil every single morning. If you have a healthy gallbladder, that's probably okay. I mean, I could see that really, that could result for not being able to do much the rest of the day because you're right. in the bathroom, but yeah. <laughs> I don't have in my mind what is like the MS diet. I mean, I think people often come to me and ask like, what should I eat? Give me a diet to follow. And for me, it's more about like sustainability. What do you think you could eat? on a regular basis and not feel like you're restricting yourself. And then more awareness of like what kinds of things are more problematic. I often like to work from the negative. If I wanted to make your MS worse, the best thing we could do is have you start smoking, you know, make sure that you gain a lot of weight, as much weight as we can get on you, just pack it on yeah. lots and lots of stress. If we can just, you know, make sure that every day feels out of control, you don't have a locus of control in your life. Drinking is probably not a bad idea if you want to make MS worse, right? And really bad sleep. Then get sick as often as you can, right? Yeah. All of those things are known to worsen the disease process. So if we can flip it around, you know, try to keep weight stable, make sure sleep is good a lifestyle where you feel like you have some control. There's things that you, you have a locus of control in your life. You feel like you have community. Loneliness is a predictor of progression. Mm -hmm. So having a community. So it's easier for me to be like, don't do these things. Yeah. Then do all of this. I like that. Even just hearing all those negatives, I feel like my heart started racing and I felt a little anxious. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had patients who have that lifestyle, 
right? Yeah. That, that they come to me with all of those problems. And so we have to kind of begin to think about tackling them. Smoking cessation is a really difficult thing, you know, especially when you're under stress. So those, those become huge obstacles that we have to kind of work through. So pillar number two. Antioxidants. Yeah. Um, and so again, you know, always starting from the diet place, same thing with the idea of thinking about a 10 minute water test. I have people think about colors. When you look at your plate, how many colors do you see? And, you know, Skittles don't count, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the reds, the yellows, the greens, the purples, you know, all those different shades of, of color that we see with our eyes, those are chemicals, they're positive chemicals, but they're chemicals that change function in the body. And so white and brown tend to be a lot of starches. Maybe something like cauliflower might be a, a white food that actually has you know, more benefit to it than just the starch. But French fries, bread, pasta, tortillas, you know, these, these are not very exciting in terms of their kind of biological effects as compared to something like, say, broccoli that has all of these antioxidants and it kind of stimulates a lot of protection in the body. So with younger patients, I'm always trying to get them, you know, some kind of a uh, reward. You know, if you eat all your colors, your parents will let you use the Xbox or something. But with my older patients, you know, my adult patients, it's really just about trying to get them to be willing to shop for those things because you have a lot of perishable items, you know, things that, that may not be the easiest to prepare. So just trying to make shopping simple and, and making eating a little more fun, but really think about the colors. What kind of colors are you getting in? And in those kind of color frame, there's two things that I have people focus on in terms of individual types of foods. One is all the really dark berries, blueberries, blackberries, cherries, pomegranate, these things that you would be worried would stain your white couch or your white carpet, you know. They have those anthocyanidins. These are, are very active antioxidants that can get through the blood-brain barrier and are very, you know, supportive to brain tissue. And then the brassica family. So that's going to be your, you know, cruciferous, your broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, kale. Those have additional molecules in them that actually stimulate your body's own defense mechanisms. And so you begin making more antioxidants as a result of eating those things. Interesting. Um, so those two are kind of important pieces of the larger, like eat a lot of colors, you know, get your carotenoids, you know, carrots and bell peppers and those kinds of things, but making sure that you're getting the brassica family. And if you look at the wall protocol, Terry Wall's protocol is very much about like a single focus on brassicas, a single focus on green leafies, and then these brightly colored vegetables. So her nine cups of, of fruits and vegetables kind of hits that framework of making sure that you're hitting those pieces. Again, an interesting study that was, you know, done more conventionally was looking at kind of longitudinal and what people are eating. I was blown away by this when, when the physician who was kind of doing this journal club said this, I, I thought maybe I misheard, but it's in there that by increasing your intake of vegetables by one cup, you can reduce your relapse rate by 50%. Whoa. I mean, that to me, I mean, that's easy to do, right? One, right. one serving, one cup of vegetables a day. If that's all it takes to reduce by 50%, that's hugely significant. Right? Yeah, that's crazy. So in addition to the antioxidants that arrive naturally from foods, there are also things that you can take that are antioxidants. So alpha lipoic acid is a 
supplement substance that's being studied right now to, in progressive MS to see if it slows that down. Glutathione, which is an antioxidant that's made by the body, but can also be taken you know, externally, very strong antioxidant. Vitamin C, the beta carotenes, you know, these things can be added in addition to a diet to try to support this antioxidant pathway. And oxidation is thought to be the main mechanism by which, you know, damage occurs to, to the myelin and ultimately the axonal death and kind of breakdown of these oxidative forces. So if you can have a lot of antioxidants on board, you can protect against that internal rusting a little better. Gotcha. Yeah. I've had a lot of clients recently asking about alpha lipoic acid. (laughs) Okay. So I didn't realize that. So that the main benefit from that is the antioxidants. Yeah, it's thought to be. So ALA is also part of a energy compound called coenzyme A that's in, in the cells. And so it's useful for energy, but it's kind of thought to be protective in diabetic neuropathy and it can move through the blood brain barrier. In the beginning of my use of it, when I first you know started treating patients, anytime there was an active lesion that gadolinium had seeped through, I'd be like, well, you need some ALA in there to try to seal up that hole, right? Now, whether or not that's actually doing it, I don't know, but, you know, MRIs get better. And so you are like, well, it must be the ALA. They are studying it now, you know, when I say they, the collective they. So there's, you know, Swedish, which is one of the neuro institutes here in Seattle is doing a study on 1200 milligrams of alpha lipoic acid for patients with more progressive disease. So EDSS of six and greater. So it's different studies in different locations are going on. So I'm excited to see the research. This is going on for me, maybe 15 years of working with MS. When I first would go to these conferences, nobody talked about vitamin D or probiotics or sleep, or, you know, there just was no diet. You just didn't go to a a particular room where someone was standing on stage talking about that. Right. And now, every time I'm there, I'm feeling like, oh, there's another, here's another diet. There's another like. So I try not to feel like I missed the boat on that because I should have been up there too. But, you know, it's, I'm glad it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in the MS world for about seven years now. And same thing, even just seven years ago, there was much less information about diet supplements even weren't, weren't even really being looked at at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so I feel the part of me that feels very proud to kind of have been on this forefront, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I'm also still kind of like, let's see what happens. Let's see what the research says. Let's see where this goes. Because, you know, a lot of the things that have been approved for MS, they have to get these things done in a short period of time. You know, you have to be looking at, you know, how many lesions on MRI, you know, maybe these subtle changes in EDSS scores. MS is a long process. And so you really in order to see exactly what helps, you really have to do 15, 20, 30 year studies to see. And a lot of the kind of conventionally approved FDA, it's just not done that way. Right. right. So when you look at something like diet, you really have to know like what has been the 20 year history of this person's diet. Mm-hmm. And then consistency becomes a thing too. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to pillar number three. Immunomodulation. So this is really important, mainly in my mind, from the conventional standpoint, that that is the way that we can control the aggressiveness of the disease and of the immune system. And so, you know, how much broccoli you eat 
isn't necessarily going to be guided based on how aggressive your disease is, right? But this immunomodulation really has to be adjusted based on demographics and aggressiveness and clinical history. And so for me, from the kind of natural end, right, I'm always going to suggest vitamin D. Vitamin D is more than a vitamin, it's a hormone. And that hormone is what helps teach cells who they are. I think of it as like graduate school for the cells, right? They're kind of like, well, I'm all grown up, but who am I really, you know? And so the white blood cells get to learn how to fight and whether they're Th1 or Th2s and how will they do that. And, and so this final differentiation of cells, even skin cells and everything else, really comes down to a little bit of vitamin D level. And so if somebody is chronically deficient, they might have a chronic onset of immune cells that are just not as smart as they should be. And maybe a little more reactive, you know, maybe they're just a little more explosive. And so that can adjust disease in terms of the long term. And so I try to think of it as like, well, if you have enough vitamin D in place, and at least everyone's getting the education they need, right? Right. And then probiotics, we kind of think, at least I used to think of my immune system as like in my blood, right? I draw blood and look at my white blood cells. But really, your vessels are kind of like streets and freeways and stuff. They're not where they live and they're not where they work. It's kind of like how they get to where they live and work. And most of the immune system lives in the gut. You have all of this immune cells that are kind of set up to live at the dirtiest place in your body. Everything that you put down your mouth is really could be dirty, right? I, I tell patients, if something was on the floor that was edible, I could pick it up and eat it, right? I, I wouldn't die, right? If I put that same thing in my vein, I'd be dead by the end of the day. So there's a huge difference between what goes in your body and what's in your body. And so that immune system being right there, the kind of entrance to that dirty place, that's what regulates kind of what's out there. And so if you're putting lots of bugs, then the immune system is like, well, it's super dirty out there. There's studies looking at children who grew up in like tropical environments and have been exposed to parasites. They don't get autoimmune diseases. Mainly, I think, this is my theory, the immune system is like, it's a dirty place out there. I can't deal with what's inside. Where a society that is much cleaner, the immune system, I don't know, gets bored and tries to find the things to fight inside. So probiotics become this way to put dirt in that isn't dangerous. And so you just keep putting more and more bacteria with all these cell walls and all this stuff. And so the immune system starts to learn like, oh, I really need to be active out here. And it starts to create these barriers in the bowel, something called defensins. And then that keeps things that might irritate your body, you know, maybe foods you're sensitive to or something else from actually touching the surface of the gut because you've got this protective layer that the immune system put there, this like web. So long story short, the dirtier you can make your insides safely, the better your immune system is about protecting you from that outside world and the more focused it is out that way. And so there's kind of less of this impetus to attack self. And so vitamin D and probiotics become this kind of long-term immunomodulatory strategy, but that has to be adjusted for someone who is in an aggressive disease course. And so that person may need to consider something like a CD19 depleter like Orcrevus or a T-cell depleter like Tysabri you know, something that's going to really shut down the immune system for a period of time and then kind of try and build back up. So that immunomodulation to me is, is the most kind of adjustable part of the disease therapeutics and really has to be kind of person to person. Yeah. So that's going to make my question very hard for you to answer. 
So probiotics is something and vitamin D as well, but especially probiotics. I feel that we hear all the time that everyone should be on probiotics. So if you have a disease like MS, theoretically, should you be taking more probiotics because you want your gut to start responding a little bit better? The research that I've read is that the protein that's called defensins that's developed is made in direct response to the absolute number of bacterial cell walls that they become in contact with. So it comes down to what your colony forming units are, like how much are you taking? And in looking at the animal studies, you know, they, they have really amazing mice studies for MS. I mean, just they have mice that are genetically modified to develop MS no matter what. There are these knockout genes in there. And so if they just let that mouse grow up, it will get the mouse version of MS. But if they give that mouse probiotics at birth, it won't. Wow. And this is something that's known, right? And, and the very first time I learned this years ago, I raised my hand in a conference and I'm like, why is the first time I'm ever hearing this? You know, But it's this idea that a, a kind of a, a naked gut that has no bacteria in it is a problem, right? And so that needs to be kind of addressed for, for an organism. Um, so point being, in those same types of studies, they kind of rolled it out to the human equivalent of If you're taking a probiotic that has at least three or more bacterial strains, and it doesn't really matter which they are, they use these kind of lactobacillus, rhamnosus, some of these others, plantarum, KCI, these different types of species, that as long as there's three or more, and as long as there's 10 billion colony forming units, that's supposed to kind of achieve that therapeutic threshold. So for me, I have patients that I'm like, well, as long as you're taking 10 billion CFU a day and you're getting at least three or more Latin names on the bottle, that's seemingly enough. I have patients who have neurologists that are much more you know, to the letter in terms of the, the type of research. And so there's a, a product that's called orthobiotic that I like because it has 20 billion and it has the strains that were used in the animal studies. And so I can say, well, here's something that has 20 billion and it's got these strains and I'm not stepping outside of any study guidelines. This is, this is what's there. Patients who are very immunosuppressed, you may need to consider something different in terms of what they can take and making sure that, you know, their immunologist knows or a patient who might have MS and, you know, organ transplants, or, you know, there might be people who are, are much more suppressed than someone else. And so just knowing it's a good product and that, you know, someone's put their stamp on it is important. Yeah. And that's really helpful. If someone listening is never looked into probiotics before, if you just Google probiotics or put it in Amazon, you're going to find like a million different options out there. So it is helpful hearing that at least the 10 billion, billion. because there are some, I've seen some for 50 billion and the list is so long with all the different Latin words on there. So that is helpful. Yeah. And as far as I know, there might be some additional benefit to more, especially for someone who has more GI issues. But in terms of kind of stimulating that defense and response and kind of making sure the immune system is active in the gut, that 10 billion three three strains is, is kind of what they've settled on. Awesome. All right. So here we go. Fourth pillar. Repair. This, I mean, this is where all the goods are, right? So, you know, The main piece that I think about for this is methylation, that methylation is is a normal mechanism in the body. A a methyl group is a carbon with three hydrogens. And I think of it as like a little cowboy hat. (laughs) 
And yeah. so that carbon can kind of sit on a lot of different things. And so it can sit on DNA and that might turn the DNA on or off. It can add to a group that's in the liver and make that thing active or suddenly inactivate it and make it safe. You know, it can, methylation is how the liver can break things down. When you're making new neurotransmitters, when you're kind of shifting through things in the brain, methylation is a big process. So making sure that you have enough methyl donors, so that's your B12, folate, and, and B6, to me is a big part of helping to make sure the body has what it needs. There's this kind of funny thought with vitamins, right? They're cofactors. And so if your job was to go to Times Square and find someone wearing a red shirt, right? It would matter what was going on in Times Square, whether the time of day or how many people were there for a particular convention that's wearing red. Your job is to find one person with a red shirt, right? Your odds go up if there's a lot of people in Times Square and if there's a lot more red shirts around. And so these enzymes are cruising around looking for their cofactors so that they can bind so then they can do that next thing. It doesn't make that job work better, but it increases the probability that that transaction, that chemical reaction is going to occur. So vitamins are really there to kind of increase the probabilities, right? Mm. So if you have more vitamins in your body, then the probability that some enzyme is going to work correctly and then complete something is better. But there's a limit. Taking more doesn't make it work that much better, right? It's just making sure that it's there. So something like B12, you know, that's measured in parts per trillion in the body. And so if you can raise that a few trillionths, you, you make a huge difference in terms of the, the kind of collective amount of B12 that's there. And so I've had patients with a B12 level measured on a blood test of 250 and a physician say, oh, that's fine. You're good. You're in the range. And in my mind, if I can get that to 500 or a thousand, I have greatly increased the probability that B12 is going to do what it needs to do. And B12 is hugely important in the nervous system. So I don't like 200s. I like 600s. I like thousands. I don't mind 2000. Like I, I don't get caught up in, in B12 being really high. Mm -hmm. Vitamin D, a different story, right? The, you know, vitamin D gets to be 100, 120. You can run into some problems because it's a hormone. So vitamins are different in terms of, of making sure that there's enough, right? But methylation is, in my mind, one of the key pillars of repair, that you need methylation to make the repair systems, the detox systems, the, the systems that kind of fix the body need to be working in methylation as part of that. And then things that are considered to be you know, for fancy word now, nootropic, right? Stuff that stimulates the brain. There's all kinds of new suggestions there all the time, right? I like something called CDP choline because it's a approved therapy in the EU for mild cognitive impairment. And it's been shown to kind of increase acetylcholine and, and help with processing and some of the things that people with MS Cogfog deal with. So that's something that you know, maybe repairing tissue on, on the surface, but ultimately is also making the brain work a little bit better. I'm excited about lion's mane. I, I haven't seen, you know, any solid research, but there's certainly a, a lot of inkling that it's the right thing. Looking at people who were on lithium carbonate for schizophrenia and, and bipolar, you can see that that's actually slowed brain atrophy in those patients. So the idea that lithium maybe in very low doses, not pharmaceutical, but more, you know, vitamin doses might help to stimulate, you know, the brain and brain size and MS is very important. Um, 
you know, that's one of the straightest correlations of disability. An MS brain that atrophies very quickly is an individual who progresses into disability much quicker. So keeping the brain plump and healthy is really important. So again, that's sleep, exercise, you know, getting out, meeting people, having conversations, you know, learning new things, stimulating dopamine, those, those repair the brain. Those are things, you know, the, again, the kind of work that you do, right. Getting people to use their brains and bodies in a different way. It it puts them in uncomfortable situations and that's when you grow. Right. So Yeah, I love that. And I love that all the things that we're talking about today are ways to improve our inside, because that's really what it boils down to when it comes to managing MS. And of course, there are disease modifying therapies to help with that. And I love that you pointed out that each person is, of course, different, but it's not always that more is better. You know, there are some vitamins where maybe more is better, but others not so much. And I think I run into a lot of clients who as soon as they hear something might be helpful, they want to take a ton of it because they think it's going to be better. And that's not always the case. Do you have any general guidelines for supplements or dosing, or is that just something where each person is different? Yeah. I mean, each person's different. It's also a little bit tricky, you know, in terms of like recommending supplements in a venue like this, where I don't have kind of access to the patient and, you know, what state they might be in or country they might be in. So I'm a little bit cautious about saying everyone should take, you know, 2000 IUs of vitamin D or something, which is lower than I would suggest normally, but kind of making specific recommendations. But yeah, I mean, there are things that I tend to like to see on a supplement list. And those are like the B vitamins, you know, the active methyl B. So I'm a fan of methylcobalamin, methylfolate, P5P, which is the active form of B6. So I like to see people who have vitamins that are like active B or, you know, methylated Bs, because I feel like that's what we're looking for is that methylation. The type of vitamin D, D3 is different than D2. So making sure that someone knows kind of what they're taking. Sustainable types of fish oils, you know, or even cases where someone's eating, I want to make sure they're eating like a cold water fish that's smaller, like a sardine versus like tuna, right? Which is a bigger fish that's dirtier. So there are things that I tend to recommend, but I like to think about the fact that if I give someone a plastic bottle of vitamins, they might take it for a week, a month, maybe a year, maybe longer, right? I have no real control of that. If they think that that's something that's helping them, they might just continue to do that. But I guarantee they're going to eat every day. And I guarantee they're going to sleep every day, right? And I guarantee that they're going to run the risk of getting sick or stress or all these things. And so it's primary to me to help them to understand those environments as the core. And then if they want to take some D or some B or some C or some NAC or some glutathione, great. You know, I I know that that's now a supplement Mm -hmm. that I believe in that I think is also beneficial, but... I don't know that any one bottle of anything is going to make the difference. I think so. that's really powerful though, because all of these tips and your recommendations seem manageable. It's something that we can control what we're eating, what we're putting into our bodies. It's hard when you don't feel well. Yeah. And it's hard when it feels like the world is really not set up for you, right? And I have patients who live in, in places where, you know, a, a healthy diet is not an easy thing to achieve, you know, mostly fast food around, or they just don't have a lot of money or these food deserts that you hear about, you know, 
And so here in Seattle, where everyone's organic and hippie, it's, it's not too hard, but there's not a lot of places that are always like this. You know, it can be really difficult for someone who's dealing with a disability and not feeling well and, you know, maybe not working and doesn't have a lot of disposable income. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always, I'm always trying to be conscious of that for patients of just like, what can we do that you can do that's sustainable for the next 20 years? Because that's what we need to be doing. Yes. Yeah. Accessibility is, is huge. Cause if you can't access it, you could have all this information, but you yeah. can't actually use it. Totally. Awesome. totally. And, and your education that you just gave us too, is part of that. Just having access to you and your thoughts and your expertise is really helpful. It's the mixed blessing of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, this kind of video format and people getting their information and kind of being more comfortable in these environments has, at least for my patients who, who have been disabled, you know, they feel like the world has suddenly come to them. And so there's, there's been some small little silver linings on this whole worldwide shutdown we had. Absolutely. And you had said that there's a few holistic independent things that you're interested in. Um, Would you mind sharing those? I'm kind of a Luddite when it comes to social media. I feel like if you're going to be on the internet, you really have to be there all the time. So there's two things that I love, music and politics outside of of medicine. And so my cousin is a journalist. He has a a politics newsletter called Tangle, and, and he has this holistic perspective of what's being said on both sides and kind of how to you know combine it together. And so it's a quick eight or nine minute read. You get a, a newsletter four a day if, if you're free, five a day if you pay for the extra one. And he's just a really bright guy who has a really good sense of how to have a holistic view of the political science world and what's happening. So Tangle, readtangle.com is his website there and podcasts on Spotify and everything. And then here in Seattle, we have a wonderful music station uh, called KEXP. They broadcast around the world. You know, you can, you can live stream all the time. But they do events for, for medicine all the time. They have mental health and cancer days. And they support all kinds of music, uh, world music and blues. And, you know, every, every DJ has their own little, little spin on stuff, no pun intended. And I love music. I love all types of music. And so for me, it's great to have a station that just plays everything and they're independent. You know, I I give money to both of of these organizations. And so I thought, well, maybe someone else will too. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. But thank you for the moment to promote those. Yeah. And if someone listening does want to find you, work with you, reach out, is there a website or anywhere that they can go to do that? Yeah. So seattleintegrativemedicine.com. It's, it's kind of a long you know, link, but it it gets you right there. So that's the clinic that I'm in and that we run. And so kind of connecting through that, you'd have to reach out to the desk and kind of set up an appointment and those things, but that's the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. And I will put that link in the show notes as well. So if anyone's listening, you can go there to find it. Dr. Marco, this has been so insightful. I feel like my brain is a sponge. I'm just taking it all in. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. 
If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.